like the gas wars that occur on Ethereum are extracting value from the use cases that are running on it, from the users, from the liquidators, from the actual MEV bots. If you think MEV is a net positive, the gas is actually taking away from it. And it is giving it back to the to the Ethereum holders. But I think over the long term, there's no way that level of extraction survives mass adoption. It's just not how technology works. Alrighty, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. Today we are recording on April 24th, and we have a great interview for you, this time with Anatoly, the co-founder of Solana. Now, you know, we've been on a huge modular thesis binge in the past couple episodes, and we really wanted someone uh, to come on and give us the counter-argument. Why is all of this wrong? What is the what is the other solution? And why is that one right? Uh, and no one else better to do this than Anatoly, the founder of a monolithic blockchain uh, that is really based around high-performance, high-throughput, high low-fees, um, it's just a totally different approach than really the modular thesis of specializing each blockchain for one individual component. Uh, but as always, we are joined by two of the BlockWorks research analysts to kind of give us a market recap of everything we've had going on since the last episode was released. Uh, this time it's Ren and Zero X Pibbles. Uh, Ren, I'll throw it to you first, man. Who do you got in the hot seat or cool throne this week? Yeah, sure. I have a hot seat this week. This week, my hot seat is MEV Blocker. So... If you're paying attention, probably around two weeks ago, CalSwap and a few other DeFi protocols and a few other MEV infrastructure protocols worked together to release MEV Blocker. For those that who don't know, MEV Blocker is an RPC that basically prevents your trades on a DEX more often than not from getting front run or sandwich. And I think this week, a few people have learned how the RPC works in itself and how it prevents the front running. And there's been several points of contention within the MEV community. So specifically with MEV blocker, a searcher can see the content of a transaction without the signature. So that does mean that if you are a searcher and if a user is going to buy a token, they could still try to fund run you just perhaps non-atomically in a separate bundle, right? So in order to combat this, what MEV blocker does is that it sends a number of fake transactions to searchers within the public mempool. So if you're a user wanting to buy token X, MEV blocker basically can generate two more transactions um, that basically say that you are going to buy token Y and you're going to buy token Z instead. So now, basically, if you're a searcher and if you want to buy token Y, which the user is not actually buying, you're going to lose money there because there's no one to sort of like close your trade out. You're just going to buy the token and you're going to sell to yourself and you lose money on fees or for example, like the DEX fees. And so because of that, the searcher doesn't know whether X, Y, or Z is real. And that's essentially the mechanism in which MEV blocker quote unquote guarantees that your transaction won't be front run or sandwich. And as far as for me, that just feels like a weird mechanism to you in terms of, sure, you want to share information about your transaction, but you don't want to share too much to the point where a searcher can front run you. And then your solution becomes spamming the mempool with random fake transactions. And it just seems inefficient, for lack of a better term. Yeah, it does seem like an interesting way to kind of go about this problem. Um, but what's interesting is, it, it, I, I agree with you, it feels like rudimentary in a way. But if it works, and that's our best current solution, then does it matter that it feels like overly simplistic? Um, I don't know, in crypto, we always bring up like razors and whatnot. So like Occam's razor, maybe the simplest way is the best way. 
Yeah, and also I've been using MEV Blocker, and it's really fast. I remember when Flashbots dropped their MEV mitigation RPC. I feel like the transactions were a little slower, um, but MEV Blocker is really fast. I like it. That actually feeds pretty well into my hot seat for the week, which is just the general market. We saw a ton of meme coins get launched. Everyone was trading Pepe, LSD, Doge, um, Wojak, Neon, or whatever it was called. Like It just got a little bit wild. I think we all should have known it was a little toppy in the market. But yeah, MEV extractors had an absolute field day uh, with all the meme coin action going on. And it was kind of interesting to me because I noticed uh, that the L2 DEX volume is kind of on a rise or on the rise. But then I looked at Uni V3 on Arbitrum and there's really not that much volume on meme coins. But then you go to Uni V2 on Ethereum and the top 10 pairs are pretty much all meme coins, Pepe being number one with like $400 million of seven day volume. So I'm not really sure what the reasoning is. Maybe it's because Uni V2 isn't really on many L2s, but those L2s aren't extracting MEV and then they have lower transaction fees. So I don't understand why meme season wouldn't take place on an L2. Uh, maybe it's just better marketing, more people paying attention to like the hot contracts on Ethereum mainnet. Not really sure. Uh, but yeah, nonetheless, uh, I've got the market in general on the hot seat. Definitely, definitely got a little complacent over the, over the past couple of weeks. I agree with you. It really feels like we we should have seen this one coming when last week all the Slack channel was popping off with these different meme coins. But um, yeah, nonetheless, it did get frothy. I think we actually put Arb Sellers in the hot seat last week, which maybe we need to be in the hot seat for for throwing that one there because uh, Arb has been one of the biggest losers, just being a higher beta coin over the last couple of weeks. Uh, those tend to indeed be the biggest losers. But um, yeah, I think the point about meme coins is interesting, right? And it, I don't know, it brings up my inner conspiracy theorist. Like, is there a cabal that's launching these meme tokens that actually see traction and tend to have like similar wallet histories linking a couple of them together? Uh, and then you start to think, all right, well, this is all happening on ETH. Like, it's a great way to say, you know, there's still ETH burn. It's still... Um, proving things to be, you know, like proving like economic activity because on the surface you just see DEX volumes are high uh, and it does look like that. But I don't know. I haven't dug, in, dug into that theory at all. So it's really just a baseless claim, but I don't know. There's also the idea, I guess, that if you're going to launch a meme token, you want to kind of go to where the wealth is rather than trying to pull the wealth somewhere else. And by far the most wealth is on Ethereum. So it's like make it easy for people to buy. Don't make me bridge anywhere else. Just throw the meme token here. Yeah, definitely. And a, a fun fact for all the listeners is that half of our team got rugged on Neon Coin last week. So if the dev is listening to this, I wish you a very bad day. Um, but we started off strong in Wojak early in the quarter. Ren, you had a cool theory too around uh, like kind of like MEV bots, like purposefully. I guess, putting these meme coins out there to try and get attention and extract Mev. Do you think there's much legitimacy to that theory? I think that partially, or at least that's a conspiracy theory I believe in, because on one hand, most of the AUM within crypto relies on Ethereum, right? Rather than Arbitrum and Optimism. But perhaps you could also argue that if it did launch on Arbitrum Optimism, it would have just seen a lot more volume just because transaction fees are lower. But also, you can't really... There's no MEV for you to extract on Arbitrum or Optimism today, given those centralized sequences. So 
I think I don't know. I, I I like to believe it. Um, but also like just some interesting stats, right? Like Jared from Subway, the famous MEV bot, last week made around two million dollars in profits, which is a crazy amount. He was basically all of the trade volume within the Pepe, the Warjack, all the meme coin pools. The guy processed, I think, seven hundred fifty million in volume between like ETH and all the meme coins, which is pretty ridiculous for like an MEV searcher and. I think a few other notable people within the MEV community have also pointed out that there was a combination of factors that made it so lucrative for MEV participants last week, right? One was that apparently there were bots that were designed to make any user sell transaction fail, right? So they were basically just mess with all the transactions, front run it, and basically make the slippage within the pool higher than your slippage tolerance. And to basically give the impression to users that your transaction is going to fail unless you set a really high slippage tolerance. And I can't confirm it. I haven't looked at the data, but that's apparently what's happened. There were bots like in those liquidity pools intentionally like messing with prices and making everyone's trades fail. And so everyone ended up putting really, really ridiculous like slippages. And if you went to look at, for example, EigenPie, the Wojak, the PP, and if you looked at sort of the top profiting MEV, transactions some of them were really ridiculous like the mv bot profited like 30k and the end user got like 500 dollars back from his transactions which implies a slippage tolerance of like 99 percent, which i'm not sure why would you ever do that's i guess a summary of our state of the market right the market moves against us and we simply bring out the conspiracy theories Pibbles, who you got on the uh, the cool drone this week? Yeah, so I have the Mad Lads slash XNFT backpack team. It was a super fun mint. That was my first mint on Solana in quite a while. And uh, it was super cool. Like Thursday night when they were supposed to mint, it got pushed back an hour, then another hour, then a whole day uh, because they were getting DDoSed. I think they had upwards of like 2 billion requests at one point. Um, but... They had a successful mint on Friday night, and it's really neat because it's like the first public XNFT mint, um, and that's like an executable NFT, so you can have like XNFTs that are dApps that are live in your own wallet. So this was the first mint that was live in the backpack wallet. It was a super cool experience, and overall, I just really like the backpack wallet. Yeah, we've been harping on these for the last week and a half, two weeks, and it was fun to actually experience the mint firsthand. I was actually going to be really pissed because I it was supposed to be at seven o'clock on Friday after they delayed it today, and then they did ten minutes and then ten more minutes, and I was like, oh my god, this is about to be a repeat of last night, and it's like a Friday night at seven twenty. I'm like, this is the last thing I feel like doing, but yeah, super excited about these things. Um, I scooped one as well. I know the floor has been kind of a rocket ship. It's Monday, April twenty fourth, but the floor is sitting you know, mid high seventies. So I'll be curious to see if the price action actually sustains. I saw some people on Twitter talking about how Hadeswap, which is like a pseudo swap ripoff on Solana, um, acquired like 225 mad lads in order to kind of have some protocol and liquidity, uh, and drive some volume over there. So apparently that's a bad thing for the longevity of the floor price, but I don't really know. I don't stick around Solana too much. Uh, during my like personal usage on chain, so not not super sure. <laughs> yeah, some cooler things to point out about the Mad Lads Mint is one, the Solana network didn't go down, so that was really cool. I mean, they get tons of flack for that. You know, it's happened a few times, but I mean, there's quite a bit of demand, 
and um, things worked out fine. Uh, another thing to flag is that there's going to be some sort of snapshot on April 29th, I think, and we have no idea what that's for. On your first point there, we kind of get into this with the talk on uh, with Anatoly, but briefly, you know, the isolated fee markets and some of the other technological improvements that Solana has been working on over the last six to 12 months have really come to fruition in this moment, right? Massive demand. It actually crashed the backpack app itself, uh, but yet the activity on chain, you wouldn't even be able to tell, right? So we'll get into the into the interview of what the uh, isolated fee markets do, but basically... Uh, with a global fee market, if one piece of the ecosystem is getting really expensive to use, a lot of demand for it, then everybody pays more fees. We see that on Ethereum, uh, right? If there's an NFT mint, then all of a sudden selling it, making uni Uniswap transaction becomes 5x more expensive. Uh, but in the case of Solana and their isolated fee markets, that just because there's one active mint, not other users don't have to pay more. Um, and that's something that I wouldn't be surprised to see become more of like a crypto standard if we fast forward a couple of years from now. That just seems like a better way to build a blockchain. Yeah, going back to XNFTs, I think it introduces some sort of unique mental models for people to think about, right? For example, in the past, if you wanted to gate access to a protocol or quote unquote an app, a very common method was to issue a limited edition NFT then you would have to hold that NFT in your wallet, then you could access the protocol, right? But now with XNFTs, rather than issuing limited edition NFTs to access the protocol, you could issue limited edition apps or the XNFTs themselves. And I think it's just a very interesting way of thinking about the possibilities with executable, executable code within an NFT. And I also asked some guy at Solana, I think some person on the de developer relationships team, in terms of what's possible, right? For example, if I have to update the XNFT, do I have to reissue a new XNFT? And the answer is no, you know, I thought it was yes, but apparently all you need to do is provide an updated bundle and re-upload it, then the XNFT will update its metadata. And for example, you're also able to have multiplayer games work on XNFTs, which is also, I didn't think that was the case because all of the games within the backpack app were single player, you know, like, 2048, Flappy Bird, all of like those like really like old school fun to play games. But apparently there's a way to sort of make an on-chain game which validates a state and basically stores a state hash. And so you can validate like the state of the game and multiple people can play within the same XNFT. So I just thought like those are very interesting to think about. Yeah, that is super cool, Ren. Plus like just think about the security upgrade for users. Like if it's in the app store and it's trending, it's probably pretty safe um, versus I still triple check addresses when I type them in manually if I don't have them bookmarked. Like I'll go to the docs and then I'll go to like their Twitter and make sure that I have the right URL before I connect. So it'd be really nice to just have that all in one spot within your own wallet. But Dan, I know you uh, got a cool throne this week. What you got? Yeah, that's right. I'll uh, take us back to Ethereum land and I'm um, actually putting one of the OG DeFi apps on the cool throne, Curve Finance. So uh, I feel like we've been harping on their stable coin. That's been like such a long time coming. Um, but over the weekend, we saw some interesting activity around 0x Babe, one of the Curve deployer addresses. Um, maybe we can link that address in the show notes. Just uh, if anybody wants a free little alpha to follow, that's a great address to throw on the Etherscan uh, watch list. But nonetheless, this address had some interesting activity around launching and testing new contracts. Um, and some of these were 
appeared to be stable swap pools with ETH native as a as the pairing. Um, and if we check the GitHub, there was a couple updates around like test deployment of a dummy contract and things like test new price oracle. Um, and one of the things that they've been working on is creating a price oracle that is an alternative to use to Chainlink. Um, and so this kind of starts to feel like it's the last piece before we see Curve USD, the stablecoin lending protocol, go live. Um, because obviously with a lending protocol, you have collateral and you need to know the price of that collateral to make these you know, pendulum type liquidations. Um, and this is going to be a huge unlock for a lot of different reasons, uh, aside from the obvious ones like vertical integration for the protocol, right? So also adding a stable coin and a lending protocol on top of the decentralized exchange. Uh, it also gets the you know, protocol revenue diversification benefit of that as well. Uh, but to me, there's a more exciting unlock here, and that's really like creating this feeless transfer market um, between different types of listed collaterals. And so what I mean by that, uh, this is actually first flagged to me by CurveCap. He's got a great Substack. You should definitely check that out. Um, but he kind of came, brought this idea to me that came, uh, where if you have, so assume there's two collateral types, Wrap Bitcoin and ETH, for example. Each of those would have its own AMM, so its own pool, and they'd have like liquidity within this pool. Well, if you assume that this is the case, then these pools are natively making generating fee revenue from interest freeze, uh, which means that the protocol can set the trading freeze of these two pools to near zero, or let's just assume zero, and it would still be generating revenue even if uh, swaps are taking running through this pool. Uh, at a 0% trading fee. Uh, so basically, Curve USD can come like this feeless link between different types of collateral, right? Because that's in the world where we only have two collaterals, but let's assume there's now 10 or 1,000 collaterals. Well, this stablecoin then becomes like this feeless transfer mechanism. Um, and the more depth, the larger trades you can push through these pools. And it kind of just like makes an interesting scenario where Curve is a little bit more prepared for this uh, race to the bottom in fees that we kind of expect to see in the decentralized exchange market. Um, so it's just kind of like another interesting element for how this stablecoin and lending protocol gets a little more interesting than just the on the surface, like, oh, we're expanding what the protocol does. Uh, but this also comes at a time when we see more developments being pushed out by the Curve team, right? So uh, the first leg of the uh, TriCrypto upgraded contracts was just rolled out as well uh, earlier today on the 24th. And so the TriCrypto upgraded contracts are a huge unlock. And honestly, to me, this is even more exciting than the stablecoin. Um, for a very simple reason. So uh, the TriCrypto pool is one of the largest pools on Curve. This pool holds Ethereum, um, Wrap Bitcoin, and USDT, Tether. And the ability to, it's like using the Curve V2 AMM, which is a concentrated liquidity AMM that automatically adjusts pools liquidity around a central point. Uh, so it's kind of like in contrast to Uniswap V3, which allows LPs to move their, uh, liquidity across different ranges selected individually by each LP. Uh, in a Curve V2 pool, the point of concentration is automatically updated based on like an exponential moving average of the swaps that are being run through the pool. So when the exponential moving average moves too far away from the current market price, uh, that is when the next trader will be tasked with running a computation that rebalances the pool's liquidity. Now, the issue is that that computation is pretty expensive and you're putting it on the bird, like the burden falls on the trader, which traders are the ones generating your fees. So it's not that great that you're kind of putting this burden on them because ultimately the gas cost to execute swaps in that pool will increase. 
Well, the upgraded version of the tri crypto contracts dramatically reduces this cost. The early tests were around of a four x improvement, um, and if that's the case, then when it gets pushed out to mainnet, which it feels like it's hours or if not at most days at this point, um, we'll really see if that four x improvement was realized. But what this will do, if that four x improvement is true, then we will have the an average swap will be cheaper on Curve than it is on Uniswap. Um, and a lot of the time, it looks like the Curve V2 model can throw you a better price than Uniswap V3 could. Uh, the issue was we really missed out that on um, the gas fee difference, right? So it was more expensive to run this trade uh, than the savings you'd get on a better price was removed by the extra gas costs that you'd have to pay to execute. Um, and lastly, one of the biggest issues that Curve is facing right now um, in terms of like a achieving the most DEX volume possible is the absence of an ETH and USDC pairing. Right now, that pair accounts for about 42, 43% of Uniswap's volume on ETH mainnet. Uh, and Curve just has no exposure to that. To run an ETH to USD swap using only Curve, you'd have to be routed through two different pools. And again, it comes down to gas costs. That's just an expensive trade. So Uniswap is just, just absolutely eating all that volume. And it'll be very interesting when you see new pools launched that kind of can service this new market that, again, is a massive portion of Uniswap's revenue. So uh, I kind of personally expect to see Curve eat into a massive portion of that volume. Um, again, this is kind of you know under on the back of the assumption that the upgrade is successfully successfully reduces the gas costs used to run these trades. But, you know, the Curve devs are pretty fucking based, so I, I really wouldn't be expected to see anything else. Yeah, and if anyone else's eyes or ears kind of glossed over during all that stuff, but it sounded really bullish, just go follow Wen Llama on Twitter, and it's kind of like a high beta curve play. I don't really know what the deal with the deal with them is, to be completely honest, but I really like llamas, and uh, they're minting every hour and a half, I believe, until Sunday of next week. So you got to get kind of lucky. I think it's an auction style mechanism. So you just got to check back every hour and a half and maybe get uh, a cheap llama. But it's directly related to the curve. Dow, Dan, you probably know more than I do. Um, but the floor is around three ETH right now. So if you can snipe a cheap one, it's pretty good RR. If none of that made sense too, you could also subscribe to BlockWorks Research. And we have a great report written by Dan about all of those fancy mechanisms that he just described. And he really writes it down super well and even i couldn't understand it which means you should probably subscribe but either way for dexes i think it makes sense right like i think everyone knows that dex fees are based at the bottom right it happened in tradfi with stock brokerages it'll probably happen in crypto too because no one really wants to pay 30 bips even on the long tail asset and so the fact that curve has this interesting mechanism to compensate lps even without the presence of trading fees just seems really interesting compared to all of the other decks sort of designs out there. Well, you guys are really making me feel like I need to TLDR that. So quick recap, stablecoin and lending protocol gets you vertical integration and revenue diversification. Also with the ability to kind of compete in that fee list race to the bottom that Ren was just talking about. Uh, and the upgraded tri crypto contracts allow you to permissionlessly pool any three assets uh, of which ETH USDC will likely be common pairings, and that will help Curve compete greatly with Uniswap in terms of volume dominance. Awesome. Well, I think that's a good spot to call it. Over to our interview with Anatoly. 
Awesome, everyone. Well, we are joined by Anatoly, the co-founder of Solana. Uh, truly a man that needs no introduction, but you know, thanks a lot for joining us today, Anatoly. We're excited to kind of dive into a lot of the recent developments um, of what's been going on with, with Solana as a whole, uh, but also some of the more technical stuff as well as, you know, that's kind of the, the sector that we like to dive into the most on this podcast. But um, again, there's been a lot of exciting news over the past couple uh, you know, days and even weeks. So love to dive in, dive in there first. And we've really seen this uh, shift to a, a mobile first perspective in crypto. Uh, and you guys are really making an effort to capture on that with the release of the Saga, uh, the new phone powered by Solana. Um, and so I'd love to get your take on kind of the core strategy behind launching that phone. Um, and, you know, this comes on the back of news of like Uniswap releasing a mobile first app as well. So we're really seeing that shift. And yeah, again, just want to get your take on really the core strategy behind Solana launching this phone. As you guys know, it's really hard for Web3 apps to actually get approved in the iOS and Google Play stores. And oftentimes they have to cut features and kind of hide what they're doing. And it's the experience on mobile has been pretty bad. Um, like I would say, like the transitions are kind of weird. You, there's like every application you connect to, there's like 50 wallets to choose from to connect to. And then you're kind of dealing with this like weird context switching or having to copy a link to the thing that you want to do inside the embedded browser in these wallets. So it's like, doesn't feel like the future of finance, <laughs> like at all, you know? So uh, I think that's kind of like was one of the main reasons, but uh, you know, one of the other ones was that simply I worked at Qualcomm for over a decade. The stuff that we worked on there, even, you know, when I was there, we've, we were already building a trusted display and trusted touch, like secure display and secure touch and the trust zone that connects all three of those pieces to make sure that like when you're having, when you have to build applications that have that like super high security requirements that Android can't even like look at the display or take a screenshot of it. Like all of these things, that technology was already there. That was like, I think close to a decade ago. So I felt that it's just really a shame that it's not by default in every phone, that every device right now we just, isn't like that perfect hardware wallet that you want that's programmable with like a rich set of applications that can interact with it and stuff like that. So that was that was the other reason. I really wanted to see if we can like kind of set an example and move the industry forward a bit. But the main one is that devs really need like I think a third party store that's crypto friendly. Now, something I'm really excited about is uh, Backpack and XNFTs with Mad Lads minting uh, tonight. We're actually recording on Thursday, April 20th for those uh, listening on Wednesday, uh, six days later. But is that going to be integrated directly in Saga? And are you pretty excited about that? Like, can you kind of explain what XNFTs are and why they're unique? Yeah, XNFTs are a way to deploy applications. So it's kind of very similar to what an app store does. What's really cool about it is that this is something that a standard that uh, Armani built, who is the founder of Backpack, to uh, for devs to build like applications that get embedded inside the wallet. And you kind of need that because the wallet is a very kind of visceral experience of ownership and crypto. Like a, what makes an NFT is the fact that like Phantom and Soulflare all display the same image for the same address in the NFT. That's really what makes it. If there's like another data structure that has the same kind of mathematical representation in the data, there's like a public key and it points to that image. It's not an NFT because I don't see it in my wallet. <laughs> this is like a, a very important 
like concept, I think, for adoption of like digital assets. And the fact that you can build a, a protocol with your own implementation of how to display and interact with that digital asset and then propagate it, you know, now to all the, you know, all the users of Backpack, I think is really, really cool. It's really going to, I think, accelerate the development of how users interact with Web3 with new digital assets and stuff like that. Interesting. And we've kind of been on a modular tear on this podcast, like the last three or four weeks. And, you know, in that conversation, you often hear light clients. And I think it was Nick White from Celestia was talking. Yeah, like, I'm super excited to see how Saga goes. It'd be awesome if, you know, we could get kind of like a light client app store type deal on the Saga phone. Is this, is the phone going to be very, very Solana focused in particular? Or are you open to, you know, a lot of different other? I'm a open source maxi. So like, we just had to ship. So like we cut down old features that were not <laughs> that were like necessary. And now that we have some breathing room, uh, folks are adding support for other curves. Uh, so like, I think honestly, like anyone that's using that to 519 curve should be able to use like add a wallet to it, which I think a bunch of blockchains are anyways already. So I think we want to add support for basically all the, whatever's missing, we'll, we'll add support for it. I think it'd be really cool to see like, the entire industry start kind of like collaborating on a on what these data structures look like for sharing applications on on chain but also moderation and all these other things because those are very much part of like the mobile experience we really don't want to be in control of any of it i kind of feel like users should be able to pick whatever you know application top 10 list they want, right? Which is like where the moderation comes in and stuff like that. Hey everyone, big announcement from the BlockWorks Podcast Network. We're launching a new show called Lightspeed and hiring two hosts to come build it with us. Lightspeed is a show for builders focused on the use cases that will onboard the next generation of crypto users by taking learnings and inspiration from the garage days of Silicon Valley. We really want to capture the perspective from builders because that's what the ethos of crypto is content experimentation and relentless innovation to build products that users can't resist. If hosting a show like this sounds exciting to you, then head over to the careers page on blockworks.co, which we have linked in the show notes. You can also reach out to me or Sam on Twitter to talk more about the opportunity, but overall, we're stoked about Lightspeed. So if you think you'd be a great host, please do not hesitate to reach out. One other exciting development over the last week, I think it was just yesterday, actually, uh, Helium making the official migration over to Solana. Can you kind of speak to that and uh, you know, where you're excited. It is so cool. I don't understand why it's not like the biggest thing in tech <laughs> because like 5G is a, is a really cool technology, but it's very expensive to deploy. So like what most people don't realize is that 4G cellular networks, those towers have like a range of 30 to 40 kilometers, but 5G, the ultra wideband cells, like only have a range of about 400 meters. So it's very, very short. And they can't go through walls. They can't go through trees. So, like, if you were to just blanket United States coast to coast with 5G, like, ultra-wideband, like, cellular hotspots, it would take, like, I think some people estimated, like, 10 million. You probably don't need that many to cover all the users, like, because most users are concentrated and there's Wi-Fi in a lot of places. But it's still going to take a lot of work to get you that, like, I'm driving down the highway, at 50 miles an hour, like, you know, 60 miles an hour, and I'm watching a movie and like my friends are all FaceTiming, right? Like with somebody on the other side of the world also driving like 60 miles an hour, right? Like it's just going to take a lot of hardware to do that. And what's really cool about Helium is that they've proven out that users can 
deploy a lot of hardware like all over the world and do all that coordinating using you know cryptography and a blockchain so they did that with their like low-rand network which is like built for iot so you can build like you know like iot devices that have insane battery life but now they're trying to do this for 5g and they're competing with like the biggest corporations in the world with AT&T and Verizon and stuff like that. And I think they have a shot of actually doing it faster than them. And if that happens, I think that's like real proof that decentralization is like a, a net good for the economy. It like touches like the very fundamental like thing that we like very fundamental piece of, the, of like the U.S. economy could be built by decentralized networks. That could be like, I think, groundbreaking for the entire industry. So I'm, I'm really excited for them. Just to give you like a sense of like where things are at, I think AT&T and Verizon have about 50,000 uh, like cell towers for like 5G. I think Helium's at about 8,000. So it's not like they're a million to like a thousand. It's, it's like actually like they have a reasonable shot that just started to actually passing them. And that I think in itself would be, I think, massive news. Yeah, that would be a, a big win for honestly the industry as a whole. Uh, but I'm curious. So, you know, one of Solana's original messages was really about trying to bring like be the NASDAQ on the blockchain. Um, but given this more, it feels like there's been some sort of a shift, right? And away from like that order book style, like idea um, into this more like mobile first idea. So I'm just curious, like, how do you view the vision of Solana today? Well, like the the focus on speed and performance, uh, that is not actually going away. We've like tripled down on the investment there with Fire Dancer. It's just when you improve cost and performance and like fidelity and all these things that you need for like NASDAQ level finance, it makes everything else like just great. It makes it easy. The user experiences are like fantastic and you have like low fees and fast finality. That's what users want. And those additional use cases are not even like, don't even come close to the amount of traffic that's generated by like oracles and order books, like Pith and like OpenBook and all these like, like Hero Now, like all of like, an ellipsis, all of these like order book style DEXs generate massive, massive more number of transactions than the users. So my feeling was always like, if we can get it to work in that like NASDAQ <laughs> level, it, like it, it works for NASDAQ and it's a decentralized global permissionless network, then all the Web3 stuff is just going to come for free. I love that framework and thought process. And one of the things you mentioned uh, was Fire Dancer. So, you know, having that unlock of diversification, diversifying, uh, diversifying the network clients uh, with Fire Dancer is a huge unlock. And I believe that makes Solana the only other network uh, with a second client other than Ethereum. Uh, so I'd love for you to dive in on you know, really what Fire Dancer is and how it improves performance. So this is a, a team out of Jump Trading. Uh, it was actually their like, chief scientist is now leading this effort. It's a second implementation of, this, of the Solana client written entirely in C, hyper-optimized. It's built on a technology platform that Jump uses internally for data processing. So they like handle 400 gigabits worth of throughput <laughs> on, on this like software platform. It's really, really cool. This is like what I dreamed of Solana should be designed like when I started, but we just didn't have the resources to, to like kind of build it from scratch that way. But because they now see the end state, they know exactly what we built and what the design is, they can actually then like do these, all of these hyper optimizations. Uh, 
and the kind of like results are demonstrating are ridiculous. So like during Breakpoint, they show they can do uh, this is like commodity hardware off the shelf Intel boxes it was handling six hundred thousand transactions per second throughput through like the transaction like scheduling stage, which is really really cool. Richard recently like tweeted their like demos of Quick, which is like the internet protocol that we're using for coordination. They're showing like on four cores, it's doing over 22 gigabits worth of like throughput. So, <laughs> so like they're really, really like, uh, like you, people like that are super into like, like low level networking understand what like XDB, XD, XDP is and like uh, how to actually like take advantage of like all of this like low level network hardware should go look at the repo for Financer. It, it's awesome. Yeah, that thing just sounds like it's absolutely screaming. And so that I guess that begs the question though, of if it if Fire Dancer is so much more performant than the current Solana client, like why does that like the you know, you'd imagine every uh every validator is gonna kind of switch over to running Fire Dancer. So does that kind of like remove the benefits of the diversification in this case? So the key part for safety is that the runtime logic, like the thing that actually plays the the transactions forward and the logical state transitions, but there's multiple versions of that. So you could have Firedancer be the primary client and then all the work of actually getting the blocks, staying on tip and like dealing with shreds and all this other networking stuff is done by Firedancer. And then the Solana's replay like client can basically work behind it and already built ledger and verify that the, the same result is built by both clients. And that gives you all the safety that you want because now you have two clients, all the top validators that are like in the top 33% can easily afford running two servers that to them hardware costs are pretty relevant. So that's kind of the expectation there is that they will run one primary, one secondary. For a lot of the other folks, they can pick one or the other. So we'll have like enough client diversity to give us those properties. For liveness, it's a bit more complicated. So with liveness, you could have a system where like there's a bug, something is getting saturated and like, you know, and running out of memory and you can switch to the other client. But if you're switching from Firedancer to Solana, you're probably going to see a performance aggregation. And maybe that's okay. In those kinds of, in those kinds of events, like it's better to lose some performance than to have like a liveness failure. Great. Appreciate that background. Um, in terms of local fee markets, I've seen you kind of tweet about that quite a bit and like isolated fee markets. Can you just explain what these things are, how they work, why they're important for the user experience? Yeah, this has been like, um, this is what plagued us last year. And we did have a tr like an option, but to innovate, which is really cool. <laughs> so the problem that you have with like blockchains that have low fees is that uh, bots that want to take advantage of an economic opportunity, like an NFT mint, they will submit infinite number of transactions because it's very cheap to generate and send them. And very few of them will actually get through, but they will basically prevent anyone else from being able to propose a transaction by saturating the mempool, all the queues leading up to block production with dummy data. So what, what happens is that in that environment, you have like these malicious actors that are like economically incentivized, just submit. At one point we saw like literally like, I think close to a hundred gigs, gigabit worth of traffic hit one of these nodes. So these are like saturating the line 
like the network cards at the data centers to handle the traffic going in. And the majority of this vast, vast, vast majority of this traffic is dummy replicated transactions. They even like modify them a little bit to like to break the deduplication, like the simple deduplication filters. So like all of this stuff is saturating the network and the validator can't drop them fast enough to get to the valid transactions. So you needed like a couple pieces fixed there. One is you needed uh, the ability to limit the amount of traffic that anyone can send. And that's quick. So we changed from UDP to quick. So now bots can't just send a hundred gigabits worth of data. They can send some limited amount. Of course, at that stage, bots will then like create a thousand different bots that are all sending a little bit of data. So <laughs> to deal with that, you have to actually limit the amount of connections that anyone gets based on stake weight. And that kind of distributes that problem across the entire network. So a bot can't connect a million like Sybil nodes to the leader that could connect a few, and then maybe they can connect to other nodes in the system. But because we have a very large network, like over close to 2000 stake nodes, it becomes a much harder problem to saturate the entire thing. So any anyone that has a connection to a stake node is guaranteed some some ability to send traffic through. And because now you have like some guarantee that valid users get their traffic through, the validator, when they receive this data, it's now bounded, they can actually sort it and drop it. And this is where the localized fee markets come in. So the way Solana works is that it's a parallel runtime. It can execute a bunch of transactions, but if all the transactions are all hitting the same NFT mint or the same like liquidation for a, a borrow and a borrow and, and like Soland or like a really hot, like, I don't know, market in Orca, you can only fit so many at a time in a block. Even if you have other block space, it's simply because these are all dependent on the same state, like the same chunk of memory. So those transactions are all have to be sequential. There's no way to parallelize them because they're all touching the exact same spot in the state. So you can kind of think of it as like a hotspot. Like everybody wants the same NFT mint, that one chunk of memory that's identified with that NFT mint that stores like the state of that NFT mint is the hotspot. So you can only fit a certain amount of those. So the way that the sorting works is that it takes the highest transactions by fee and fills them out up until that little state, like that's a hotspot, fills up in the amount of work it can do but that's not the entire block. So that's the amount of work that any single thread can do. So like any single thread on your CPU or whatever, it can take 400 milliseconds to work in a hotspot, but then you fill up all the other spots after that. So what that means is that like, you can have a very hot NFT mint, like you're gonna see with like Mad Lads and the fees to access that might, may spike, but that's not gonna impact any other marketplace, any other transfer, because they're simply not interacting with that state. And that means they can be scheduled. So because validators now have like a bounded amount of data that they can actually do the sorting and filtering, they can actually then bucket all of these transactions by hotspots and then take the top hotspots and put them into a block. So it's like a, you know, like a pachinko machine. It's just like filtering all, the, all of these things into slots and then like taking the top ones and that happens to be your block. This is a really exciting solution here. And I'm curious if you can go a little deeper on how they identify hotspots. And so like, I guess in the example you gave, right? Like Mad Lads will likely become a hot a hotspot, but that doesn't necessarily mean every other NFT mint that's simultaneously going on will be a hotspot as well. So how does it like, 
I guess, how do you actually distinguish and group these transactions into these these like clusters, if you will? Yeah, so it's a pretty dumb, greedy algorithm. So it actually sorts everything by fee. And then going from the highest fee, it starts tracking which accounts those transactions access. So one thing that's very different about Solana than Ethereum is that if you've heard of access lists on Ethereum, it's that they're required on Solana and they have to be complete. So a transaction cannot access any data outside of the access list. And a transaction has to have its access list declared. So that means that looking at every transaction, you could look at which access lists are being accessed by each transaction, right? So when you're doing this greedy algorithm, you take the highest ones and then you start tracking which access list fills up first. And as soon as that one fills up, you don't allow anyone else to access it. Okay, that makes sense. I guess I think I just we're missing a small piece because you mentioned how, you know, Solana is kind of designed with hardware in mind and parallel processing is also another thing you've already mentioned. So do you mind kind of explaining at a higher level uh, how parallel processing actually works, how it scales execution and, you know, the benefits or trade-offs associated with it? Yeah, so the, the tricky part is that the system like has to be parallel in every step of the way. If you have any single cube that's single threaded and I think it's saturated, you kind of lose benefit in the entire system. So and there's a lot of detail to explain there, but fundamentally the key part that we did is that we parallelized the environment, the execution environment, the virtual machine where transactions are executed. So unlike EVM, you can think of every transaction in EVM has like a, a global write lock on the entire state. It can touch any part of the state, it can do whatever it wants, and then it executes, and then the next one gets to do the same thing, and it's all done very sequentially. On Solana, every transaction specifies exactly what state it's going to read and what state it's going to write. So reads can overlap, but writes cannot. And this is where the, the scheduling algorithm and how we do replay is that you look at all the sequential operations for any given state, and you can put them all in one thread. And then you take all the other non-overlapping stuff and put them all on the, the next thread and so forth. So then you have multiple threads executing all of the state transitions in the in the runtime. So that gives it like that fundamental level of parallelism in the core execution part. And then from there, you have to make sure that the scheduler itself can handle the parallelism and that the mempool can handle the parallelism and like so forth. Because if one of those ever like fails, you end up having like a sequential system that's bottlenecked. So like one thing that folks don't realize is that this is the best you can do. Like you can't actually improve upon this. It doesn't matter if you have zero knowledge VMs or layer twos or layer threes or whatever. Like what happens in databases and in systems like this is that it's called the database hotspot problem. Everybody wants to access the exact same state. So when you have like everybody in the world that wants to, you know, like flip the same light switch, you know, if you have a hundred people that all want to flip the same light switch, doesn't matter how, how, how many light switches you can flip in parallel because, right. Because everybody wants to flip only that one light switch. doesn't matter if you like make the light switch flipping a thousand times faster, <laughs> somebody wants to go first and that causes a hotspot. That means that you have to prioritize who gets to go first, who gets to go second. And this is where that localized fee markets resolve that, is that people can bid to, to access first. Now, the problem on Ethereum and EVM and mempools, the way they work today, is that if you have one, one switch where 100 people want to flip it, and then you have a totally unrelated thing, like a Oracle update, 
or, or, or like a, you know, an, an NFT mint, they see the block getting filled up with high paying transactions that all want to touch that light switch. They all want to go mint that one NFT, but Oracle updates still need to happen. And people that want to liquidate still like want to cash those liquidations. So don't, they now try to outbid that entire use case to be included in the block. And that causes this gas war between unrelated use cases because there's no parallelism in the mempool because there's no parallelism in the runtime. And as soon as you add that, like you can't, you're not going to fix that lack of parallelism with L2s because the same thing can happen in optimism. You have an NFT mint in optimism and a liquidation happening at the same time in the mempool there, you're going to have a gas for and fees are going to go up. So the only way you can do this is like actually with transaction isolation, what Solana does. And once you do that, you have that parallelism established. Your only other kind of thing that can impact fees is just throughput. And there, you know, add more hardware every two years, every 18 months, roughly hardware gets cheaper. So things will always like kind of tend to like get towards zero for the base fee. So it sounds like you're not exactly bullish on the idea of scaling Ethereum through rollups, but I think a, a common rebuttal to that would be like, well, you're going to have app specific rollups. You're not going to have an NFT mint on a, you know, an app specific rollup that's just a DEX or something like that. How would you respond to that? Yeah. The, so like Cosmos and like very application specific environments that only do one thing, that's like a way to do that. But that's not a, like a generalized solution, like that's effectively kind of very crude level of isolation. You can literally do the same thing on Solana. You can have like a program specific circuit that's like a ZK prover that's optimized for that one thing. Am I going to call it a layer two? Like, <laughs> like it's not, <laughs> right? Like I think the, the program specific stuff is cool and I think will work everywhere. And that actually does solve a problem, but it's not... Uh, I would say like a general solution that you can say like, this is the way to scale like these systems to like, you know, the entire world. Yeah, I think that's a fair take. Um, you also mentioned that, you know, you kind of see these gas wars that happen on Ethereum, but ultimately that leads to, you know, Ethereum's core value accrual in terms of like burn and, and you know, MEV that accrues the validators and ultimately stakers. Um, how would you say Solana thinks about this problem? Because that's how Ethereum's tackling is tackling security. I've heard you mention that you don't think Sol the token is money and you don't want it to ever be money. So I'm curious how you think security works long term and in, in, for Solana. I think those are totally unrelated concepts. I think security comes from operator security. Like it hacks is the physical security of the network is the security of the network. The token itself is virtual. It doesn't actually do anything. So it doesn't matter like how much of it is burned because an attacker can acquire the keys to the voting infrastructure for the network for free through remote code execution, through all sorts of other attack vectors. So the actual token itself is meaningless. What matters is how many independent parties you have that have secure operations that maintain their state of these systems. And what's interesting, you can have a, an unstaked node can provide tremendous amount of security like Circle. They have billion like dollars of of on Solana. They need to secure their node to make sure that that node is not corrupted. They don't give a shit about how much stake is on that node. It's totally relevant. They have a business reason to make sure that their node is like secure. <laughs> and that is actually more value than all the stake in the world. So fundamental security of the system is that like the number of operators that are independent that give a shit that they have a uh, high secure like infrastructure, making sure that that state is never corrupted. 
So I think security is like a totally separate subject. Like the gas wars that occur on Ethereum are extracting value from the use cases that are running on it, from the users, from the liquidators, from the actual MEV bots. If you think MEV is a net positive, the gas is actually taking away from it. And it is giving it back to the to the Ethereum holders. But I think over the long term, there's no way that level of extraction survives mass adoption. It's just not how technology works. Like, I think if you have like 100 million users, they're going to be very price sensitive to fees. So there's a few rollups, uh, two that come to mind, Eclipse and Nitro that are looking to deploy the SVM as, as L2s. How would you say your take is there considering you're generally bearish uh, the idea of scaling a base layer with L2s? I think it's awesome. Honestly, like I think people are going to be building L2s. They should be using SVM. <laughs> like the runtime is better. It's actually parallelized like it. I think offers like a better programming environment because it's using Rust, a modern language. Not only that, it's using LVM. So all the work we're doing to add like move and solidity support is available to all those folks. So like myself as like an open source maxi nerd, it's awesome. Like it's licenses under Apache license for that reason. Like we want people to go take the code and, and go build products with it. Now, whether I think that that environment is going to be as good as Solana Layer 1. That's a different thing. <laughs> but all the work that they're putting in ultimately feeds back to, you know, upstream. So, like, if they find bugs, if they find improvements or, or like, build better tooling, I think all of that part, all of that is, like, I think a net good for the entire ecosystem. In terms of security as well, back to that topic, I think a lot of Ethereum uh, people would also say, well, you don't really have any at-home validators when it comes to Solana. It's mainly people you know, with large server access or whatever it is and the resources to actually spend the hardware, uh, spend on the hardware. So how would you respond to that in, in the case of like a regulatory backdrop or, uh, or crackdown, I should say, or, or basically any scenario where the network needs to fall back to at-home validators? Um, so like one thing is that like people way overestimate how hard it is for the government to crack down on at-home validators. Like, first of all, the ISPs that you're connected to, Comcast, AT&T for home connections, those are the, the, all those companies are effectively extension of the federal government. They're federally subsidized. They have to get their licenses from the federal government. <laughs> and the amount of users that they would have to shut down is very, very small compared to their total user bases. Like Comcast is not going to care if they kill every home validator. Like, so you're actually like, like if there was like a real regulatory crackdown, home validators in, in the U.S. will not survive. And very unlikely, I would say, majority of the world. Um, so like from that perspective, I don't think there's any advantage. Anecdotally, there's already home validators on Solana simply because you're starting to see like one to 10 gigabit like network connectivity at home just just from the rollout, like just from the general upgrades. So I think that that's like kind of happening on its own. But I personally believe that for these systems to scale, they have to be highly available systems. And when you look at Solana, it's in over 200 individual data centers. Like the network is in more data centers than most networks have nodes. <laughs> so it's very, very much distributed around the world. Um, I personally believe that like crypto, if it's going to succeed, it's going to succeed in the United States. And I don't foresee like a future where like 
US has a massive crackdown and like there's even a point to a high performance blockchain. Like it's basically gonna be like Bitcoin, like uh monetary maximalists like <laughs> w- waiting for the the rapture of the US dollar collapsing. <laughs> yeah, fair points there. And so uh, you know, as Sam mentioned, like there's definitely that you know, Solana like catches heat for that. And the way I'm like starting, and also as Sam mentioned, like we've been on this modular tear for a while and the ideas of like a shared sequencer system. But, you know, in my mind, when you start adding roll-up after roll-up after roll-up onto the same shared sequencer, the hardware requirements to run and participate uh, in, a, in that sequencer shared sequencing system uh, is eventually going to hit a point where, you know, is it going to be drastically dif- different than the requirements well, to run a Solana validator? So I'm curious, like what's your thoughts look around uh, like the shared sequencing landscape? Yeah, these are like, even so when people say it inherits the security of the layer one, they don't actually mean that like me as a layer one user that I magically have layer one security on that rollup. Like the rollup could run invalid state transitions. And if there's no full nodes, there's nothing me as a layer one user will be able to do. So me as a layer one user to get pure trustless execution, I have to run my L1 node and my L2 node to make sure that if L2 causes a fault, that it's submitted. Now it's a little different with ZKs, but still the provers are like inscrutable. You have to run <laughs> like a classical version of the same computation to make sure that the prover didn't screw up. <laughs> like there's trusted setup. There's all these other issues that may be solved in the next 10 years, but not, not right now. So like if you consider that, then you're running multiple nodes. They have to be high available systems. You could run a Solana validator right now for 350 bucks a month. It's like you're looking at the cost effectiveness of each. Now, like I think things are much more interesting with like light clients and things like that, which systems are, are more more suitable for light client proofs and like getting the idea that when you have at least a large user base of like node providers that are running these for business reasons, that at least one of them is honest. And that is enough to guarantee like shared security of the system. This is what you get as a layer one user. This is what you should be getting as a layer two user as well, without actually running any nodes as well. But you need like either, you can do this socially. You can literally go into the channels where people that run these systems like work and like keep an eye on things. And like you receive a transaction and you wait like eight hours nothing blew up, right? Like nobody's claiming that there's a fault. It's probably okay. But it's better when these systems are automated with protocols and you can get like these guarantees within like 30 seconds or a minute. Um, And I think from that perspective, when you have like system like Solana with a bunch of big block, with a bunch of big validators that are trying to maximize that number of full nodes. So at least some some set of them are, are honest working with light clients. That provides a very high, like, like very high security for the vast majority of users, and that is, I think, very competitive to low cost validators, but a bunch of effectively high compute cost L2 nodes that users still need to have protocols to get these like shared security guarantees. The trade-offs are like, from my perspective, it's actually easier to analyze Solana because you can look at it and say, okay, there's like two thousand full nodes. A bunch of them are businesses that are running this to make to like that have valid reason to run this, not just like getting tokens from staking rewards. Like one of them is going to be honest, right? <laughs> so, and all I need is a protocol to make sure that uh, 
like that signal gets propagated if something happens. So I, long term, I think like the light, like light clients will kind of eliminate the gap in what the normal user gets as security between all of these networks. And that performance and like finality will be like the, the main things. So I'm curious, how do you think about transaction fees as a whole, right? So if we look at you know, Solana, it's known for its high throughput, low, uh, low transaction fee model. And like to the end user, do you really care if like once a, once a transaction is say below one cent, like is there any difference if it's like a hundred of a thousandth of a cent at that point? Or are you like over optimizing for, you know, like MEV at that point? Well, like the central limit order books, the market makers and the pith oracles, they care about the fees because they do submit like over 20 million transactions per day. So that starts to add up. I think they would like to see like, you know, the fire dancer team, like their goal is to get us to like that, like over a hundred thousand TPS, like steady state. That means that fees can even drop even lower and they can put more data on chain for people to trade on. And to them, that's like, that would be really cool because that impacts their normal business. Like if, if there is like a public data store of all the NASDAQ trades that was, that's now being piped to Solana, that would be like, I think that would impact their bottom line just and, and a lot of like trading firms bottom line. So I think, I think reality is that like as these systems scale, machines are going to be accounting for 99% of the volume. Users are going to be like, Users are going to have very low fees. Like the cool thing is that like a user can pay 10 times more to outbid everybody, <laughs> like all the bots and get very like high level of service on Solana. And it's still a, like less than a fraction of a cent. So like you can 10x your fees, like always, like as a, as a Solana user and you get highest priority above like the average transaction and it'll have no impact. That, that I think is that that kind of level of performance is what we really want to provide is that like users have the option to get really fast service still at a very, very low cost, but the network is a data rich environment with lots of participants like, you know, doing stuff. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense as well. And I want to kind of uh, take the conversation to dive in on, on the state of MEV on Solana. So I'm really curious just to kind of get your, your overarching thoughts before we dive into more of the specifics. Like how, what is the, the landscape of MEV on Solana today? Um, so Jito, I would say, is like the leader there. So they have a stake pool. I think it's over 20% of nodes are running a Jito client. So they have like a searcher network that's optimized for, you know, finding those like opportunities that's, and then submit bundles into the network. Uh, it's awesome because they're like creating client diversity. They have their own build of the Solana validator. So now there's not like a single failure point of where you're going to get your source code from, which is, I think, really important. And they're very smart engineers and they're very much performance sensitive. So like as many of those folks as we can get looking at the code and like optimizing and testing, I think ultimately results in better outcomes for users. And uh, it's, it's like having that as a transparent part of the ecosystem, I think is very important because it, I don't think there's any way to like really get rid of MEV. Um, so making sure it's transparent and competitive is what's going to result, I think, in the best experience for the users. So do you think something like enshrining PBS, Proposer Builder Separation, is like a, a path that you'd like to see Solana pursue? Yeah, we've had this idea. Uh, we called it multi, uh, multiple leaders per slot. Like it's been kind of part of the genesis of the Solana design is like that if, if we have multiple block proposers proposing at the same time, then the user can basically 
send their transaction to the one that's offering the highest MAV rebate. So these proposers are then like competing, right, for user transactions, and they're like an average seeing X returns, and they're like, hey, send me all your flow, I'll give you a rebate. Like that should be like the end state of MEV, is that the, the proposers are very much optimized, like, I don't know, maybe running massive GPU farms trying to figure out <laughs> what is the triangulation, like bundle, like best, best outcome. So like, that's something that's been, I think, part of our intent, like from, from day one, there's a proposal right now, like a, we call them SIMDs on the, in the Solana foundation repo to, uh, that actually is pretty close to the proposer build of separation that you see on Ethereum. Now, I saw you put out a tweet. I can't remember when it was, but you were saying that dApps could actually recapture some of this MEV. Is that exactly what you were just referring to or that looks somewhat different? So that's a bit different. So like one of the things that we see is that uh, there's a lot of uh, opportunistic arbitrage spam in the network. So like uh, basically whatever, if you have like financial state in these systems uh, and you have X amount of capacity, right? Or X amount of, like access to that state arbitrage will fill it like the entire capacity of that state if the transaction fees are low enough and that's actually fine like we don't really care so they're like submitting a bunch of transactions 99 like percent of those arb transactions fail because they're opportunistic hey if this price is x just happens to be x and i get lucky then i know this is a profitable transaction so why don't i submit it because the cost to do that is, is pretty pretty is low um one of the ways that we thought that that could benefit applications is if they could charge these transactions just for taking a write lock to the state. So like if a transaction wants to access Mango and it's an ARB that's like, hey, I'm trying to see if there's like a price on Mango that's a f that I want to take, but if not, it, the transaction fails. But just, just even asking that, like querying that state and taking the write lock, it has to pay Mango a certain amount. Then Mango can tune their fees to basically like capture this ARB, like this opportunistic ARB returns. Mango itself can capture it and give it as a rebate to users that are creating valid like uh, bids and asks that are adding liquidity to the system. So from a very high level, you can think of it as like your traditional uh, ESN like exchange that gives people that are creating liquidity a rebate and those that are taking liquidity paying a fee. So this is kind of like the the system that we want to build in, like create at the, at the low level, because that's very hard to do at the application level itself, because from a, like a high level, like outside the app, I can submit my ARB. If the application doesn't do what I want, I abort the transaction. It means that the entire state transition is canceled and Mango doesn't get anything. So this is kind of like what we want to undercut is the ability to do that uh, by, by these like opportunistic ARBs. And then they can actually do this like balancing act. Okay, we can set our fees a little higher. And that means that there's going to be fewer ARBs or at least the ARBs are paying more. And then we give a rebate to everybody that's adding liquidity. And that that's, I think, creates like a better environment for, for users and traders. I love how you're approaching MEV in this fashion, right? Like instead of worrying about the moneyness of soul, yeah, the MEV is flowing back to the application and, and the users that are generating it. Um, is that is that is that like broadly your thesis there? Is instead of the token, rather focus on the the users and the creators of this MEV? Yeah, I think ultimately, like what's good for the creators and the programs and the users is good for the network. I think that's actually I think better 
uh, more sustainable approach for growth. Because like, while it seems like you're getting a return, right? Like, oh, more ETH is burning. As soon as everybody stops using it, doesn't matter how much ETH you burn prior to that. <laughs> like it's irrelevant. Like it all, it, like all that burn is like useless. It's not like a battery you're charging. Uh, does that make sense? Like as soon as like people no longer use it, the network is dead. That that's actually what happens, right? Like so, what matters is is like how do we create an environment where like these businesses can grow, grow as fast as possible, attract as, the most users they can. And from that perspective, I feel like the protocol should be like the least extractive. Like anything in code that we can do, like to make it more efficient, to give it more capacity, to like avoid like uh, unnecessary bottlenecks, right? Like I think that all, all of that is on the table. So more broadly speaking, I mean, I think, you know, there's a good chance that the future is, is multi-chain. So like, I guess, what is your guys' strategy in terms of communicating with other virtual machines and in a secure manner? I think the only chains that survive in a multi-chain world are the ones that believe that they're the single chain. <laughs> to, to survive, you have to go for, for gold, for glory, right? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, the way that we're approaching the multi-chain, like multi-VM thing is that uh, Solana's LV, like using the LVM stack. So the bytecode that it's using is a backend to LVM. So like there's a project to uh, compile move through that stack. And what's cool about that is it's forcing us to add like next generation features into the backend uh, where like now the bytecode is typed and you can do type inference between different programs and then combine them during the like the JIT stage. And then you can have uh, execute like calls between these programs that don't need to like have any safety checks that you have a guarantee based on the bytecode that like when I call the token program that I'm passing the right data. Uh, and that means like you eliminate a whole bunch of like runtime checks and like things get faster. So that's been really cool. Like just having move as a forcing function for us to like add all these features that like the kernel, the Linux kernel folks added to the Berkeley packet filter a couple of years ago. Um, so that like, that's basically our approach. LVM is very general purpose compiler. Uh, I can't imagine it like not being able to do something <laughs> like that that people come up with in the virtual machine space. There's a Solidity project too called Solang that's like I would say fairly mature, but still takes a lot of like uh, like an experienced engineer would need uh, would need to be able to use it because a lot of the kind of like the basic tooling like hard hat is still missing. But if you're like an experienced Solidity dev, you can get going with it. I honestly love that mentality. That that uh, that's. That's a good, just the right framework to be like attacking this, this, this idea. Um, but I'm curious, what, uh, like, what do you think the Solana ecosystem is like missing today as far as applications go? What would you love to see get built there? I think like what it's kind of what all of crypto is missing is there's no like application that we can point to and say, this is general consumers using crypto and getting value out of it. And these are the business models that are creating value for the world. It's just not, there's nothing here. So like, I'm like, we're trying like to attract folks that are, have that mindset that really want to unlock like value for the general consumer. Helium, I mentioned is one, Hive Mapper is another one. Uh, folks don't know what that is. They're basically competing with Google Street View. They have 
hardware cameras that are on devices, people are effectively mining like tokens by creating these constant up, constantly updated streets. And it's a really cool product because they're, uh, their updates are coming in 200 times faster than Google's, which is kind of crazy, like because they have like these drivers that are constantly mining. And uh, there's 60 million kilometers of road in the world. They're over a million already. So they're moving really quickly, right? Like <laughs> like 2% of the way there for the entire world. I think that could be like very like substantive like technology built using decentralization that we can point to and say, hey, look, this is competitive with the, you know, $2 trillion company. Uh, but it's still not like consumer stuff. It's like infra, similar to Helium. Uh, like my, like what I'm excited about right now is like, um, so like Backpack and Dialect, I think are new approaches to crypto where they're trying to basically build something similar to WeChat, where you have social and finance all mixed together. And they're taking two very different angles on it. I think Dialect is very like mobile first chat app. Uh, backpack is a wallet with a lot of like unique and cool like interactions you can do like including social uh, but the goal there is like if you have like a moderately successful social network that's struggling to raise money in silicon valley with like 20 million users would be the biggest success in crypto <laughs> we can all then point to it and like look there's real consumers they're doing stuff <laughs> they're making payments they have like simple returns on, on like you know stable coins or something like that right like it works like the whole loop works and there's and it's growing like if we get one of those successes i think that would be revolutionary and like once you have like that many users that are actually using this stuff on a you know monthly daily basis then i think the business models that make sense will just be become very obvious and fast to optimize and you'll see that like next next generation like all of that is missing from crypto like it sucks like it's been you know, I've been working on this for over five years and we still can't point to like that one use case. That's like, that's the consumer use case. That's the winner. Yeah. Strong agree there. I've, we, me and the, the rest of the research team have been preaching on that, that front as well. Like you could maybe argue stable coins as a potential killer use case for crypto. I think that's probably the only one, but at the application layer, it's few and far between. Um, in terms of backpack too, I was very excited to see uh, twenty forty eight Flappy Bird, like some of these classic Web two games in there, like kind of obfuscating the difference between you know Web two Web three. I thought that was super cool and super unique. But as someone who's so bullish on their own project, which I absolutely love, I would love to hear um, the bear case. Like, at what point would you admit defeat and be like, "Damn!" Like I was completely wrong on my thesis on how to scale blockchains. Oh man! Well, I don't think I'm going to be wrong on scaling part. <laughs> I think we have to, for me to like question it, I'd like to see Ethereum and all the L2s combined to even match what Solana does from applications today. Like reality is that like Solana does more transactions and all of their scaling combined right now. Uh, I think for that to happen, you need like, I think proto dink sharding might get close to that, but uh I'm not 100%. I'm, I'm doubtful because it's just one of the pieces you need to like really optimize the mempools as well. And I don't know how much work is being done there. And that's going to start touching the execution environment. And like, unless you do all three of those pieces, you're going to have like these weird bottlenecks that are, they're not going to quite work well together. But at least that looks promising. They're like focused on increasing the data availability layer. And that's ultimately the bottleneck is the bandwidth between nodes. Can you, can you maximize that? Um, so like I think proto dank sharding might might 
get at least closer. Um, I guess I would be impressed if like the post dank sharding, if the throughput of that system was anywhere close to fire dancer. Like, I think I would be, I'd be like, okay, this is like very much, very much a valid scaling solution. I think probably my guess is that fire dancer is going to be like a hundred X. It's just like, it, it's really, really hard to compete with like a heart, like a, an optimized server at a data center with like 10, like 10 to a hundred gigabits worth of available bandwidth. And like, it's very hard to compete with that system, right? It has all the cores, all the raw resources. The only bottlenecks right now on Solana are like our stupid code that we wrote as fast as we could to launch. Like that's not fully optimized. And the Fire Dancer guys don't have that like constraint. They get to, they're like actually building it the way it should have been, you know, from scratch, like from the ground up. So like, like software is the only bottleneck right now. The hardware is like ridiculously fast and not expensive. We're not talking about like $100,000 servers. This is literally like 350 bucks from Latitude.sh is like, <laughs> you know, multi, like very large core system that can do 10 million of ops per second on a single core. Like this is how fast hardware has gotten today. So I, I like, I have my doubts that like the, even post dank sharding, that it'll be anywhere close to like a, a well-optimized network like Solana running on, on good hardware well no doubt it'll be a, a fun a fun race to watch and uh i really appreciate you taking some time today and coming out and uh sharing your thoughts and really your your viewpoints from uh the boots on the ground vantage we would we, love, love to hear it from that perspective um so i'd love to give you the chance to kind of tell the audience where they can learn more about you solana as a whole and anything you want to kind of leave them with on uh what to what to be watching up for go buy a phone at solanabubble.com it's so easy to <laughs> to advertise. <laughs> Other than that, go to Solana.com. You can learn all about Solana and what we're doing. But yeah, if you want a, a phone that is like actually opens up Web3 to developers to so they can do whatever whatever they want and like build awesome experiences and applications, go check it out. It's actually like the best Android build I've ever I've ever seen. I like the titanium shell my guess is that like apple is going to copy it for their next device <laughs> yeah i as someone who i've used the phone and i gotta say seeing the dap store directly next to the google play store it was such a zero to one moment for me everything felt real again and it was i i'll definitely recommend go get this phone but again thank you thanks a lot anatoly appreciate it